Book, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. Today is the day following Florida's legislative session. We had a big Monday filled with a lot of conversation about education issues. And so I have two interviews for you, one with federal funding consultant, Dr. Cheryl Sattler, and one with Senator David Simmons, who led the Senate debate over House Bill 7069 and then wound up voting against it. Let's kick off with our interview of Senator Simmons. So I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. The discussion over House Bill 7069 on the final days was really fascinating. And you were leading it, but you didn't seem very enthusiastic. And then you voted no. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about how the process came to be at that point and why it ended up the way it did. Well, I would uh, refer you to uh, to Senator Lantfellow's uh statement at the beginning of the, the evening in which uh, he talked about uh, the process mm-hmm. and uh, the process in particularly when you're uh, dealing with the public trust and uh, the requirement and the necessity of transparency, the process is just as important as the product. The end does just does not justify the means by which you get to the end. Here, the conforming bills were being used as a vehicle to put a significant number of different important matters before the body in order to have a vote. It was done late. Uh, it was uh, the first draft was, as I stated, uh, given to uh, to me uh, on uh, about mm-hmm. seven o'clock on Thursday evening, and uh, staff and I worked diligently until approximately uh, 12:30 in the morning, uh, Friday morning, to uh, to digest, collate, and understand the. Uh, uh, the points that the House had made, and as the agreement had been presented, the uh, uh, the presiding officers had made an agreement relating to uh, the uh, the Senate taking the uh, House's position. I went to the uh, uh, to the House and obtained further concessions and spoke to uh, Representative Baleka and uh, also uh, uh, talked to the Speaker. And uh, uh, I was uh, able Mm -hmm. to um, uh, obviously get, uh, I spoke to Representative Baleka on on Friday. On Thursday, I had spoken to the the Speaker and uh, but uh, had further Concessions and uh, uh, by the uh, by the House, and ultimately uh, were was able to 
obtained, for example, on uh, on one of the concessions uh, that was made was uh, the, uh, and that was done on Thursday, uh, was the uh, uh, making them um, optional uh, rather than a, you know a requirement and continuing to make it a requirement. There were various uh, concessions that uh, uh, that were mm-hmm. were sought. How did the how did the House wind up with such an upper hand in this discussion? I'll, I'll refer you to the agreement that uh, Senator Latvala uh, spoke about. Now, when you were talking about things like the Schools of Hope, which I know is one of their priorities, you were talking also about the amount of money that was going to be given to traditional schools that are low performing, but you pointed out that it was a small amount for a small number of schools and it was giving them a very teeny little time frame to work it through compared to the charter schools, which would get five years versus the two. How how did that even come to be that way? Why is there such a such a leaning towards charter schools? Well, the this was the house's version that I uh, I was uh, negotiating with, and uh, the idea was to uh, spread this into four years and to assure that, I mean, from the Senate's point of view, and make sure that the $2,000 per student, which is not a small amount, it's a superb amount, uh, it's uh, the amount of $2,000 per FTE per student, is over and above the 7200 Dollars that is the normal amount. So you're now not talking about $9,400 per FTE per student in order to accomplish these, uh, these goals and, uh, uh, of, uh, of helping these children. As I pointed out, this is an admirable goal because it, it is, uh, it is everything that we now have come to learn and many of us have learned quite some time ago that when you're dealing with children who are uh, in these circumstances, uh, children who may go home uh, to, to no dinner and wake up with no breakfast and, uh, and, and have health issues, and some of them, unfortunately, where they live in September is not where they're living in January. And some of them, for a smaller portion, are not living anywhere. How is that child supposed to be able to turn his life around or her life around? And it's it's finally a realization that this is the way we've got to treat the whole child rather than simply saying at 7.30 in the morning, I'm going to uh, try to educate that child, and at 2.30 in the afternoon, I am going to, uh, you know, close the book on them and, and, and say that I'm not a sociologist or a, uh, you know, a person who's, uh, dealing with the, with the health or the societal issues that relate to this child. You can't do it. You can't break the chain of poverty, uh, and, uh, uh by, by just ignoring these other factors. You pointed out that it was for just, 12% of the schools and the rest of the schools would be left alone and that they had 
um, the, the implementation was just unreasonable. That's exactly right. And it is unreasonable. You don't go ahead and say in two years you're going to have to uh, to be able to accomplish these things where there is this embedded poverty and, uh, uh, and the problems that exist. You can't go ahead and give such a short fuse to these public schools and then say that in two years you're going to have to do one of those three things that are set forth in that bill. And it's, uh, it's like a ticking time bomb. And, it's, and you're giving the funds only mm -hmm. to approximately 12.5% using, you know, reasonable uh, numbers. Uh, you know, 12% of, uh, of these schools, 12% of the students. And so we're not solving the problem. We have an admirable goal, but a, an unworkable uh, mechanism to implement it. You, in your debate, you discussed how we could either fix it now by, I guess, killing the bill, or we can leave it up to future legislatures to fix it in the future. And I just wonder now, did I misunderstand that? There's a step that you missed. Okay. That's the governor's veto. Do you think that there is a reasonable shot at a governor's veto? Because there's a lot of stuff in that bill that people have been asking for. All I can say to you is is that uh, I simply relayed uh, to the uh, to the Senate uh, in the mm -hmm. discussion what the options were, and uh, I don't uh, pretend to be able to predict what the governor is going to do. I do know that what we're going to have to do. Uh, as a legislature, if the governor signs this, is we're going to have to come back and make a workable solution. Mm -hmm. Too much was done too fast uh, to uh, attempt to accomplish something that, when looked at, is uh, is simply unattainable. And you may recall what I said about the FSA when it was being implemented. I said it's too much, too fast. And, and you will uh, impact and impair the credibility by trying to implement something too fast and doing too much. And the same thing is true with respect to uh, what is being done trying to help these schools, these public schools that are uh, using the, uh, the, the speaker's terms. And he calls them, uh, you know, uh, failure factories or, uh, or something like that. Uh, I don't. To prefer to use that. Uh, I think that they are chronically low performing and they need assistance. Uh, and they need to be turned around. And, uh, and if we don't turn them around now, and I'm talking about, uh, with adequate resources, uh, and, uh, and the kind of attention that is essential, uh, what we will see is just simply more and more of this. It'll only get worse. Why? Because these are the chain children who are behind Jeff when they get to school. Uh, they're going to be, by the time they get in the third, fourth, and fifth grades, they're going to be so far behind that they will lose interest in school. Then what will happen is, is they will uh, ultimately, uh, you know, uh, not graduate. When they don't graduate, they're going to be the same ones who uh, are unemployed, and they will be the same ones who fill up our prisons. Well, Senator, I, I appreciate you talking with me about this issue. I know that this is not the last conversation that we'll have because, like you said, if the governor doesn't take care of the bill 
then the legislature will be left to take care of the bill and, and fixing it or doing whatever it needs to do in the future. So thank you so much. And, and Jeff, remember, there's a lot of good in that, uh, uh, in, that, uh, in that bill, but the process makes it very difficult because uh, the timing that we had, and I have, uh, I do not, uh, I, I don't fault the, uh, uh, the, the speaker for, uh, for pushing for his and the House's uh, priorities uh, pursuant to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, you know, to their, to their own circumstances. As to you know the deal that they uh, they believe they made. And now here's our conversation with Cheryl Sattler. I'm here with Dr. Cheryl Sattler, who is a consultant in Tallahassee, working with several Florida school districts on Title I issues. And thank you for talking with me today after the legislative session. I, I'm. I'm so interested in in hearing your thoughts about what the legislature included in that giant HB 7069. Um, There was a section in there, maybe 12 lines long, relating to Title I. And from what you were telling me before, this is possibly detrimental to school districts in in untold ways. Can you give us some insights? Well, I think those will be 12 lines that uh, will live in infamy. Basically, what the Florida legislature did is to tell school districts that uh, they don't know what they're doing. And Title I is a federal funding source, and the whole idea of Title I funds is to make sure that kids who go to school in really, really poor schools have some extra resources. And there's just lots and lots of research on how these kids' deficits compiled, you know, when you have lots and lots of poor kids, they're just in a different educational position. So what the Florida legislature said is, you know, districts, that whole federal idea is nice, but we know better. We know better than you, the the districts. We know better than constitutionally elected school boards. And so what we want you to do is, first of all, fund schools that don't have high concentrations of poverty. And secondly, we want you to stop all of those centralized initiatives that you have. So even though you can look at your data and see that there are trends across schools, and so maybe we need reading coaches or we've got three or four schools over there that are really struggling and we need to put some extra resources there, you don't get to make those decisions anymore. So uh, you can have a train station and you can have lots of cars rolling on your tracks, but uh, no engineers and no signal man, just you know, let all those little train cars roll as they will. What what does it mean then in terms of what school districts will have to do? Will they have to be making a lot of cuts in order to shift the money around? School districts are already making cuts. You know, what they what the legislature said is you can only use eight percent of your money at the district level, uh, and that includes their indirect rate. So most districts take about 5% as indirect cost. It pays for electricity and stuff like that. So that leaves them with 3%. So reading coaches will be out of jobs. Uh, coaches for struggling schools will be out of jobs. They will, I mean, you know, and it's May. So we're well past the point of pink slipping people in this state. So everybody is scrambling to figure out how to make this work in time for the next fiscal year, which is, starts on the June the June 30th. Don't, don't they also have the ability now to, um, or 
the lack of ability now to use some of the money the way that they had because of that 1% provision relating to um, parental programs? Oh, parent involvement. Well, so the federal law requires that districts uh, set aside 1% of their total Title I allocation for parent involvement. This legislation actually lets them set aside 2%, which seems generous, right? That's twice as much as the federal law requires. But the federal law is uh, is a minimum. So there are many districts in the state of Florida that set aside 5 6 or 7%. One of the major complaints of teachers is that parents aren't involved with their kids' schooling. What Title I does with its parent involvement money is tries to build parent capacity to be involved with schools. So it's really you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face to, uh, to limit that money to 2%. This is very unfortunate. And obviously, we will all be pushing to uh, ask the governor to veto this very bad legislation. The bill also spread the money more thinly around to more schools. Wasn't that another concern? It's a huge concern. I was just on the phone with Walton County. They currently have five Title I schools. As of this law passing, they will have 10. So you have twice as many schools, probably twice as many kids, and certainly not twice as much money. So, you know, when you figure out a per-pupil allocation under Title I, you really need for that to be a significant amount of money, right? Otherwise, it doesn't make a difference. If you give a school 50 bucks a kid, well, nobody's going to say hallelujah. What can you do with $50 a kid? Even if you have, you know, 5,000 kids, which no no school in Florida does, thank heavens. But it just doesn't add up to very much. And another concern, by the way, is that when you bring on these new schools at lower poverty levels, if they also get relatively low allocations, you know, Title I has a whole lot of requirements. And it's it's going to be very difficult for these schools who will be getting very little money to comply with the rather long list of requirements that are in the federal law. When I was when I was listening to the debate in the Senate, there was a lot of discussion about how they were trying to help these low-performing schools in the poorest parts of the state by wanting to put more money into them. And I thought that was what the Schools of Hope legislation was intended to do. But it sounds like it went more towards uh, a charter school way and that these schools that are already existing, it sounds like from what you're saying, will be in some ways starved. Does that create some sort of cycle then? I don't know that it creates a cycle, but it certainly creates a much more, yes, if you starve a traditional public school and then you park a charter school next to it, you know, parents aren't stupid. Why would you go to a supermarket that had no milk or no bread? You wouldn't. So we may be expanding choice for parents, but we're also in a certain way not giving them choice so much as we are coercing them to move their children. It's I understand choice. Choice is very important. This is not real choice. This is this is being forced. And I don't think that most parents will appreciate being forced to move their children just to get a decent education. So next steps are for school districts to start planning for this on the 
chance that the governor, well, on the expectation that the governor will sign this? Well, you know, it would be unreasonable not to plan for it. I literally, next week, there's a meeting of federal program administrators in Orlando. They will be talking about next year's application, which is generally written in the month of June. You know, it's early May, but districts have been planning their budgets since February, sometimes January. So this, this will take a lot of scrambling, a lot of very difficult conversations, and, you know, it is not going to be a happy summer in the state of Florida. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I know that this is going to be an issue that's not going to go away, so we'll probably be talking a lot more. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. That's the end of our interviews. If you want to get involved in the conversation on this or any other issue, visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook, and you can always follow us on our blog for daily news, tampabay.com slash gradebook. Thanks again for listening. 